Hi, welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavallo. Last week, we began a two-part conversation with Suzanne Koenig. Suzanne is a horse owner and a professional dog trainer. She's also been a regular attendee of the Half Moon Bay California clinics that I give twice a year. And actually, that doesn't really describe her total role at these clinics. She's not just an attendee. The clinics are hosted by Chaley Collins. Chaley likes to cook, and Suzanne was a professional chef. So the two of them get together a couple of days before the clinic, and they create three days of amazing feasts for us. At the clinics, one thing I always enjoy are our evening conversations. The work of the day is done. We've had great sessions with the horses. We've had long conversations about training. We've had that amazing feast. And now we're just relaxing, talking about training in general. And that's where Suzanne and I have had some just really fascinating conversations about how she's translated the work that I teach to the dog training that is her everyday life. I've wanted to have her on the podcast for a very long time. So I know that many horse people also have dogs. So I know that whenever we have a dog trainer on, these conversations are of interest to many of you, not just because of the connections back to horse training, but also because they're often of direct value in terms of living with, working with, training your dogs. But I also know that looking at the rope handling from the perspective of how do you translate it to dogs can help you to understand it more clearly. And no matter what species you work with or what size of animal you work with, it can be really useful to have these cross-species conversations. As always, when we get talking, it's hard to stop. In fact, the only reason we wrapped up this conversation when we did was because Suzanne was puppy-sitting 10 dogs. Imagine that, an hour and a half of peace and quiet with 10 puppies and some older dogs in the house. At the end of last week's episode, Suzanne had just commented on the connection between physical and emotional balance. We'd already talked for quite a while, and I thought this was a good stopping point, particularly because we were only halfway through our conversation. So we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to explore this question. With horses, when you help them find their physical balance, there's definitely a connection to their overall emotional well-being. And the question is, does it work the same way in dogs? Is there a connection between physical and emotional balance? I don't know that it is quite as acute as it is with the horses. With the horses, it is really there. Like, wow. But I've found that with dogs, 
their body balance, you know, they're, if, they're, if there's fear involved, apprehension, caution, they're often going to have the access is going to be shifted back, their body access. So you can see the weight on their hind legs. And if they are really interested in something and sometimes not in a good way, their weight's gonna be carried on their front legs. So one of the things I played around with a little bit in one of the shelters that I consult at was just, can we, can we work on just balance, on, on getting um, equal weight on all four feet? And with a, a few dogs, I found that, wow, that, that really is helpful for the dog. Not quite sure what the connection is for them, if it is an emotional, physical balance connection, or, or if it was just, but I, I'm kind of a, all the function follows form. Yes. And, and if so, if I can, if I can create relaxation in an animal, then it's something they've practiced. And if they've practiced relaxation, and I can even put it on cue to a certain extent, a relaxed body position. Yes. Um, can I now cue that in, in um, with more criteria, meaning more distraction, and working my way up to whatever that trigger may be for that particular animal. And that has, that has been really helpful. So that, that's taking the emotional physical balance um, piece that I took from working with you, Alex, and, and taking it to the dogs. There's a lot of crossover. And I'm sure that, you know, much of, like for instance, you know, a lot of the foundation exercises, one could find an equal, an equal um, exercise similar to what we might yes. <clears throat> so targeting would be the same in both, right? Going to a station for the head lowering, what would you put in? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that last night and I was thinking, what would head lowering? And I think um, for me, it's the, it's the relaxed down. So okay. I really work with my clients getting their dogs to to learn how to relax. I find that a lot of the dogs that I work with are on on a lot. And, and it, this goes back to training. When you train one thing, you must train another thing opposite, right? Yes, yes. And that's another rule that I use often. And recently I took on a sports dog client who's having some challenges with their dog, with other dogs. And I asked her if she had ever taught him how to just chill out. And she was like, what? She's, she's a um, IPO competitor, so that uh, protection work. Okay. Um, and these dogs are really intense, a lot of them. They're trained <laughs> and they're bred for it and trained and they're, they're pretty intense dogs. And she, it never even dawned on her that all she was doing was riling her dog up, that all she was doing was putting him in a state of arousal when she trained. Wow. That there was this other half of the emotional spectrum that he wasn't getting any experience in unless it was on his own time. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, that's so the, the, the huge advantage we have for noticing mm -hmm. these things. Yes, we sit on the animals that we're training. Exactly. Can you imagine sitting 
on that right. emotional powder keg. Exactly. You know? This also came to my uh, attention when I was thinking this through, is that right, so much of what you do, and it was really through the, the clinic this weekend, so much of what we do with the leash handling is about getting on that horse's back and having yeah. reins in her hand. Yeah, and right? having it be not having it be safe right. and fun and fun, you know, right? I mean, fun is I mean, not fun is not having my life flash before my eyes, right? Thank you very and much. I, I don't know, I don't know about you, but you know, my childhood, um, there were several horses that I rode where those reins were almost always tight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, poor horse, poor me. But you know, that's a that's all about training and communication and. And so the leash can be a cue. It can be a method of giving non-aversive, clear, concise cues that the dog then has been given choice in the matter. That, that's kind of how I feel about it. Like if, if that leash goes tight and my handler, the handler isn't paying attention, wow. That must be really odd for a dog or uncomfortable for them. And I think a lot of dogs just start to ignore it. So, well, isn't it so much better if they have the choice to release that tension and then which would release the stress, which releases the, which reduces the arousal and they have control over the pressure. One of the things we learn is because the lightness comes from slicing things down really yeah. more and more and more and more you'd never imagine that you could make so many steps on a rope so true dominique and that is really why this exercise is so important that it's a shaping exercise you know you think well i'm just gonna grab the rope and show the direction yeah but yeah. that's not what the rope handling that I've seen NX do is, you know, there are all these steps, all these, you can really th make it very, very light. And as a matter of fact, there's a point where you have to decide how light you want it to be. And that's, right. that's been another discussion that we've had, which I thought was really interesting because I know that in certain instances, um, when Alex, well, maybe you can talk about it when you train a horse for someone who may not have that kind of sensitivity, there may be a point where you don't want the horse to become too light. Right. You have to match the learner, the animal's understanding with the handler's understanding, or you could have a very, really unpleasant experience from the learner's point of view. Now, Correct. I'm used to the person letting go by now and you're still hanging on to me and mm -hmm. why haven't you let go and this is really frustrating and what do you want? You can get very disconnected from that. And you use the anticipation too because the horse now knows that as soon as you start with your hand, he knows what's coming and so he could perform already, but sometimes right. that's, you may want, I don't remember how you called it, the go point or... Right, so you have... You know, just like in a race, you have get ready, get set, and then the starter pistol goes off and everybody goes. And in a race, as you watch at the Olympics, they'll all be lined up and they'll be, you know, get ready, get set, and then somebody will jump the gun. And you know they don't 
mean to, that, that they know that there's, at that level, there's a penalty for that. They could get disqualified from the race. They don't want to jump the gun, but they do. And with the horses, there isn't a penalty, but it's, you know, they get ready, get set, go. Oh, you move off. It's click and treat. This is great. So now you say, get ready, get set. And the horse says, oh, I know what you want. You want me to walk off. So I'll walk off. And the handler is thinking, wow, this is really great because my horse is getting so much lighter. This, I love this. I love that I, I just have to begin to slide down the lead rope and look at that. My horse is responding to me. And so I'll click and reinforce that. And then you start to get, get ready. And before you can even get to the get set part of the, of the process, the he already saying, knows. I already know. And he's walking off. And you think, this is really great. Look at how light my horse is getting until it's no longer all right. So, uh, and, and it takes a little bit of, it takes going through this once, at least once, to realize, wow, there's a, there's, there have to be some boundaries, really, to what I'm asking for. Because if I'm under saddle, it's great that I give a really light cue and my horse goes up into a canter. It may even be great if I just think about cantering and my horse goes up into a canter. But if I am thinking about, maybe I'll think about cantering and my horse is already cantering, maybe that's too light. Yeah. So, well, it, it, it brings us to the whole discussion about cues because, yes. you know, what comes before what you think is the cue is the cue to the animal. Yes. And what comes before that soon will become the cue. Yes. Right. So you get to right. select what the cue is Absolutely. actually going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. The is anticipation a- aspect of cues is really phenomenal in every, in all species. I mean, yes. these horses and dogs and humans. Um, and we want that. We absolutely we do. Like that. Yeah. But we want what we need to realize is that we get to participate in the setting of the get ready, get set, go yes. point, and we get to stabilize it. Yeah, that's right. the word you use. Sta- the stabilizing is the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, because there's so much that you can learn just from handling a rope, you know from cue to shaping to, I mean, everything is in there, really. You know? Well, I think the, the, the thing that's unique about the lead is that it's not our voice or, I mean, it is our body to a certain extent, to be sure, but it's, it's something we're manipulating in our hand. And that is, is really powerful. Yeah, because sometimes it, it can be too powerful because exactly you get to decide point. if it's a cue or if it's going to be a consequence. Right. Exactly. You know, is that is this a, <laughs> am I giving information or am I delivering something aversive? And so and and it can also be reinforcing, right? I mean, release of anything is for the most part going to be reinforcing. So I, I just find that there's a lot of responsibility, shall I say. But also, you have. Which, which is not something discussed a lot. Well, yeah, it is. And I was going to say it's more, there's a difference in, um, I think, the dog world and the horse world in terms of, or maybe it's just like the clicker training community, um, in the, certainly because of Alex's work, the rope handling 
we've become very aware of how we communicate with the lead ropes. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe there isn't that much emphasis in the dog world, although certainly, I mean, the dog pulling the leash is, is a very prevalent problem, but the refinement of the rope handling of Alex is probably quite unique. Right, and that's the, that's the key piece right there, Dominique, when working with the dogs and using the techniques that Alex has developed with horses in the lead is, is how to use it with finesse. Yeah. Exactly. So that it is not a, um, it's, it's not a tool that, um, that is abused in any shape of the, of the word. And that is something that was just, I can't tell you how valuable that, that learning that how to use a lead in a non-aversive, non-threatening, communicative way was just opened up the world for me. And changed my horses. Lightness of cues has always been, even in traditional training, has always been something that horse people were very aware of. But it, and then Alex added the, you know, how can we do this in a clicker compatible way and has brought it to another level. So I think that's maybe because even in the traditional training, people do want light cues. You know, they want, oh, they yeah. want their horses to be very light and to respond very, you know, you barely see hands and moving and feet moving. But here it's so 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 i want to take it in a in a, in a slightly different direction which i want to go back to something that that you said a couple minutes ago suzanne and that's the all the tactile information mm -hmm. and, and it made me think of the amount of real estate in our brain that is devoted to the information that our hands provide mm -hmm. you know we have opposable thumbs and we do some pretty incredible things with that opposable thumb and the other four fingers. And when you think about all the tasks that we perform, just picking up a pen and what is required in processing the picking up and manipulating of a pen and the real estate that is uh, devoted in our brains to that tactile information. And in a lot of Parts of our lives, we pay no attention to that. We don't bring that into focus. It's there. You right. know, when you, when you have, uh, why, why do we so enjoy some of the animals that we have in our lives? Like uh, stroking a cat. Mm -hmm. oh, you know, it's that tactile information. Or to have uh, a blanket that's uh, a hand-knit blanket that's where they've used mohair and and <laughs> and wool together, and you just you feel like a cat that just wants to sit there and need it. That's tactile information. So we're we're bringing that to the fore and really using it. When I slide up a lead rope, that lead rope gives me so much tactile information, and as I become as I learn how to pay attention to it and focus on it deliberately, the wealth of information that I get from that enriches my training. I think about, I will never, none of us will ever know what it's like to be a dog and have the ability to smell what a dog smells. 
Right. Can you imagine what yeah, the world? I do actually, all the time. <laughs> yeah, and and we'll never we'll never even come even on the same planet as uh, as what you, considering what a dog can can detect through its nose. Well, tactile information is kind of like that. We tune it out. We're not aware of it, and then gradually we become more aware of of all this information that's coming at us and what we can do with it. When I slide up a lead rope and, and I have one arm that, that is resting against the horse's shoulder and I can feel subtle shifts of, of weight in that horse, that's all information and I can send information. And my mm. horse tunes into that tactile information as well. And I'm thinking also of, of the goat. So Elian, one of the older goats, is one of the, he's he's a long-haired cashmere and he has this great long flowing coat. And one of the things that I really enjoy doing is putting his collar on and his lead. And when I'm leading him, so it's shift, around their necks, right? Yeah, because they have goats. horns. The harness is harder mm. to put on right. and so on. So they're they're trained to a just it's a normal dog a collar. Flat, yeah, flat. Collar. Yeah, it's just a collar. Mm. Uh, is it? It is a dog collar, mm. and it's a dog lead. And but what's really fun is to communicate to him by shifting the lead just enough that it moves the hairs of his coat. Mm. He responds to that. And I just get a kick out of that kind of, of lightness. And a goat can pull, you know. Right. A goat can pull like a dog. But to have him by my side, the lead is loose, and there's just that little bit of lead that is in contact with his neck and shoulder before it hooks into the collar. And I can make these tiny little movements and it moves the hair on his shoulder. And he responds uh, to that. That is just so cool. I'm going to have to pay attention to that. Yeah. Um, because that, that is, uh, the, the leash doesn't, doesn't normally lay um, across the dog. It's usually held out from the dog in when I'm thinking about the training uh, sessions that I do but um, I'm gonna have to pay a little bit of attention to how that how the leash might touch the dog in another way yes. I will say one thing that I'm striving for that I didn't mention is that the snap becomes the kinetic target like you've talked about with yes and and this is really what drew me to this um, was the experience I had with one of my horses, Zorro, when he learned that, and he learned that at um, one of the clinics in Half Moon Bay early on. He learned it so fast. He learned it in one session um, at at the clinic, and he is a dream on lead. I mean, he follows that that vertical snap. Wherever you know, it, it, he just his job is to keep that vertical, and he does such a beautiful job. It's it is like walking. Can, can you explain for someone who is not seeing? Uh, yeah, so so yeah, Alexis, the snaps right. are, is important, and uh, but some people may right. be thinking, so what are they it's the floating on a point of contact, and most of us are used to thinking of targets as visual. You hold something out in front of your animal, the horse or dog, or guinea pig, whatever, follows it. And it's visual. We're a visual species, so it makes sense to have visual targets. But in the case of a lead rope, the snap 
becomes a tactile target. So you're teaching them to stay oriented over the snap and to keep a feel of the snap. And with the horses, that process really begins in the basics of teaching what I refer to as the grown-ups are talking, please don't interrupt, where you're standing next to your horse and the lead rope is held in your hand and there's a nice loop of lead. But when you have your hands folded against your body, as you do in the stylized version, the, the core teaching of the grown-ups are talking, there's a slight offset of that snap. And so mm. you click and as you're feeding, you move the hand that's holding the lead rope. You move that hand as well so that the snap hangs straight down and the horse is experiencing the full freedom of the snap. And because when is the horse the least likely to leave? When there's food under his nose. So <laughs> what happens is a lot of people, they'll click and then they'll feed. But as they're feeding, they're the, their non-feeding hand, they'll use sort of as a counterbalance because they're not in balance when they reach their hand out to feed the horse and they're leaning a little bit so their, their other hand goes back to, so that it counterbalances them so they're not falling on their nose. And in doing that, it puts a little bit of a drag on the lead. It's almost as though they're driving down the freeway with their emergency brake on is how I uh, describe it and and so that that horse is being trained to accept as normal that little drag of the snap well we're changing that dynamic and teaching that horse to look for the full freedom of the snap where it hangs vertically down and then as you put yourself and the horse into motion they're learning to follow that vertical snap. It becomes a tactile target. And so the rope handling can really be seen as just a form of targeting. It's very cool. And yeah. that when you slide so up the So talk about rope, details, right? So we're talking about angles in the snap. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it works both ways. I mean, it works with the same way with the horses. I mean, with the dogs. I'm sorry I didn't mention it in the beginning, but that's my goal is to get the client or myself and the dog as well to recognize that that is that's where we want to have the snap at all times as much as possible and that if it changes if i change it then there's some communication that's about to happen yeah and so it, that real full release of, of the tension of the the snap is something I want the dog to feel as soon as they are connect, reconnected with me. And even, you know, when we say we start putting tension in the lead, for me, the image I have is more, we start to change the orientation of the snap. There's no tension. There's well, we're taking a slack out, but we're not yeah. adding pull. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, and, that, and on a very light horse, you may not even be taking the slack, slack out and, you, you could and just, you're not going to be going all the way down to the snap. That's right. You're right. They're just, you're well, just sliding. Well, when, when, you, when you move the lead, the snap will move. Yes. Yes. 
That's right. See, and this, well, this sort of maybe. circles us back to the beginning of our conversation. This is where those uh, with the stay-at-home clinics, how the video analysis mm. becomes so useful because if you're struggling to under, to follow this, then yeah, this is where the video see. becomes yeah. so powerful and because where you can you can really play it in you know forward and back until you see you really see what is going on in the interplay between the handler and the the learner. And and you see the weight shifts. And the only thing you cannot get is and it's the feel. It's, it's the feel because yeah. when when you close your eyes and someone is going down that lead rope really yeah. slowly with relaxed hand, you feel more than when someone's going down with the really, absolutely. Yeah, there you will feel always, them really early in the process. Yeah. So that's the only always, thing you will. That and Susan's cooking. Yes, there will <laughs> there will always be a need for getting together and yeah, to having that that, mm. that direct mentoring, no question. Mm. But we don't always have the opportunity no. for that. And the direct mentoring will mean more if you have all of this background that you're bringing to it, mm. you know, that, that you've already processed this layer of the puzzle. It just means more. But it's, you know, it's, it, for me, what was so interesting, because I don't have dogs, so, I could not test directly. Well, does the rope handling transfer to dogs? You know, I, I suspected that it did, but I could not test it myself because I did not have a dog to test it on. All right. So it was always, but I had lots of people who had dogs, lots of professional dog trainers coming to the clinics and who were curious about the rope handling. And they would report back to me that they went home, they tried it, and it was really useful and powerful. And Suzanne, you were always so articulate in expressing this, and and that you know every time you return to the clinics, because this is what eight years of, um, so that's you know sixteen or so clinics plus the expos and so on, and the art and science of animal training conference and various other venues. That there, there's always, there's always another a wonderful layer or nugget that emerges as you watch people learning. And there's something that you take back always to the dogs. And for me, that was incredibly valuable to hear because it was confirmation that really of the validity of the work because I knew it crossed within horses. It worked across different sizes, temperaments, ages, you know, training backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. But to hear that it also works across species adds just that much more power to saying, this is cool stuff. Right. Well, you practice it with the goats, I would imagine. So oh, absolutely. You, yeah. You definitely can feel that. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say that one of the things that I am not as, uh, that I'm, I'm aware of when I'm doing it, but I should have been a little bit more aware of it when I was describing what I do is um, the bone rotations and oh yes um, because that's a that's a piece that especially if you have a large dog and uh, and also one that lunges and you know pulls on the leash that having your your balance 
and your position of strength, shall you say, is really important that the dog doesn't have the ability to pull you over. That is what happened with this woman with the uh, Great Dane was that she had been knocked over twice wow. um, and, and dragged. So the bone rotations were something that was very helpful as well as the balance over the bubbling spring, you know, the standing in a, in a strong position. It's structured. So it's, it, you're, yeah. you're finding your, your core structure. So it's not, you're not having to rely on strength. Because that 110 pound woman is not going to be stronger than 170 pound Great no, Dane. But it's finding your, your core structure and then knowing how to redirect the energy that is coming into your space. Right. Yeah. And and the other piece I will put on this is that, you know, also, also feeding the dog where the perfect dog should be. That's always part of the equation um, where I would really want the dog to be and feeding immediately. And then what I'm trying to do is reduce tension in both the handler and the dog because they feed into each other. And um, so if there's tension in the handler, there's going to be tension in the dog that needs to change and that typically changes by building confidence in the handler and so if i can if i can help that handler find a way to communicate with their dog so that the dog is is open and willing to listen and and respond then i'm building confidence in the handler and as i build confidence in the handler i'm also building confidence in the dog because the dog is now going wow you, okay, I understand what you're trying to say. That, that makes sense to me. And so it, a lot of times these dogs are unconfident dogs. They are concerned about their environment. They're worried. And they've been put in positions where that concern was validated. Yes. And so rebuilding their confidence in their handler is super valuable and vice versa. So you've talked about big dogs. What about little dogs? What about the worst pullers in the world, the little dogs? <laughs> the, ones that, the ones that have gotten away with it all their lives. If you get a stroller. <laughs> you just uh, scoop them up and carry them off? Or? I, I, you know, I teach, it the, I teach the exact same thing, you know? I mean, a little dog can take you down if you're not, if you're yes. not aware. Yep. Um, so I teach the same, the same thing about being responsive to the leash and having the owner be responsible for the leash. I mean, that's really so important is that it's not just a string attaching your dog to you. So the exact same thing with the little dogs. It's not as some of the techniques or the management aspect of it is not as important with little dogs because you can pick them up. Right. And so leaving the situation is often what you need to do anyway. So sometimes what I'm trying to do is teach them get out of dodge techniques without creating a, a, a worse problem. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the first things I do because I very rarely found a client who will um, stay away from triggers. Uh, yeah. You'll tell them, don't expose your dog to other dogs. Don't go to that beach where there's dogs off leash. Don't take your dog downtown where there are people or kids or whatever the trigger may be, but they'll do it anyway. So what 
what I want to teach them right up front is how do you get out of a sticky situation so that you don't make it worse. And that's where that yanking and pulling on the leash comes in because all of a sudden they go, oh my God, what am I doing here? My dog's going to explode. And they, they get tight and pull the dog and then the dog goes, oh my God, there's something to be worried about. And then they have an episode. So a lot of the things that I, I teach you in the beginning of, um, of these sessions is how do I get out of here? And the leash work is helpful with that. The, the doing the rope handling with the leash is having the leash become a cue to t help the dog understand what's happening next rather than this surprise yank or pull or, or what has been typically done in the past. It's reteaching them that the leash has some information, some valuable information that is not going to be aversive. Right, right. To look for it for guidance and safety, security, yeah. information, connection, control, but not the handler has control over me, but I have, con I, the learner, exactly. have control over yes. the situation. Over exactly. the situation. That is, yep. that is, that is it right there is how can I help this dog feel like he has the ability to leave this situation? And so often I find that the other end of the leash, the human end of the leash is actually doing exactly the opposite. <laughs> And, and it's no fault of theirs. They, they, they don't, they're, they're reacting themselves to the situation. So that's where that, that building the confidence in your handler is so important. I, I was just working with a new client um, last week and we were at her house and I could only get within 50 feet. So it was a long distance. And that had to do with the dog, not with COVID. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, uh, I can't remember what it was. Oh, the, a goat. She has goats. And um, a, a goat scurried across the pasture just uphill from where her and her dog were standing. And the dog reacted. It's another thing that the dog is a herding dog and reacts um, very quickly to movement, any movement. And I saw it immediately in the handler. I mean, just a tension just from head to foot in the leash. And it accelerated the tension in the dog. As soon as the dog felt the tightness on the leash, felt the owner get rigid, the dog was like at the, just went to the end of the leash and, you know, wanted to get at the goats. Whereas I really feel like if she had stayed calm and relaxed and done a distracting, something to distract the dog, whether that was to toss a treat or move, come on, let's go this way, or give that slight leash cue, I don't think that would have happened. I'm thinking about all the riders who, uh, create similar mm. situations yeah. and end up very frightened. Yep, exactly. Your horse maybe, you know, sidesteps a little bit because of something yeah. in the bushes and they grab that, they grab those reins. Yeah. yeah exactly. Far end of ring-itis, why does it continue? You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe because we start to get tight and tense as we yeah. start to get, but you know, and it's how do I, how do you intercept that and change that dynamic so that they are before before things are falling apart they are heading off into a clean loop of good responses 
Right. And that, and that is, you know, goes back to what Dominique was asking about, you know, how do you reinforce the handler for these, for these skills? And I think it's self-reinforcing in that they learn to relax and through the relaxation become more confident in their handling or vice versa. I mean, obviously I reinforce them uh, verbally um, and sometimes even by offering them extra sessions or a free daycare. But that is... That Careful, is, Susan, you're going to get a lot of calls. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that is so, so valuable to be able to shape the handler's skills, which yeah. is why I feel this is very helpful, especially with dogs that have these outbursts, to help have the dog working with you. Right. And you can't, someone can't say, oh, well, but she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's always had just really nice, sweet dogs. My dog really pulls. I mean, you worked at a shelter. Every dog. So you saw everything. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't have. In every size. I don't have cheesecake dogs either, you know. No, you don't. I've got some pretty significant animals and, and all but one of them came from shelters. So they yeah. came with their set of tra- train, training challenges, I'll call them. So, yeah. I, and I mean, you have an old injury, which you do not want a dog to make worse. That's right. That's so right. clearly this, this rope handling technique is useful because you're not bedridden. That's right. I have not had an episode in, I can't Knock on wood. Knock on Thank wood. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Yeah, so, so I really want to thank you for, um, I've said it before and I will repeat it, that I teach my best classes. I have my best sessions, um, either with my dogs or my clients, after I have spent time with you. You have given me a whole new horizon to to work in my with training and and definitely taking the clicker training to the horses informs my work with the dogs and vice versa yes work with the dogs helps me work with my horses but really when it comes down to it i owe you such a huge amount of appreciation for guiding me into this this way of communicating and handling just uh, uh, being body aware being aware of what my body's doing and how that is affecting whoever is on the other end of that lead or leash well that's thank you yeah that's an amazing thing to hear so thank you it's true And, and you know what i think it's a great place maybe to draw this conversation to a close, though I'm reluctant to do so. But I know that you have 10 puppies. I know, and they're all quiet. They're all quiet. They've been so good. I know. It's like, what magical spell did you did you cast over them? That they were stuffed Kongs, boy. Always <laughs> well, you really stuffed them well today because, my goodness, because we've talked for a long time. and they've Yeah, we have. So, so good. But, well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Oh, um, thank you for sharing. I've, I've wanted to do this for a very long time. Well, um, I, I apologize I wasn't more organized for, um, for your questions, but um, I figured I'd just, I'd just go from, from my hip. 
That's right. Well, there is no being organized for the questions. It's just a conversation. Right. Well, that's what you. That's what you keep saying. That's right, and it <laughs> is, isn't it? Yes. And then I look at your list of guests. <laughs> oh, yes. Like, oh my God. <laughs> You'll be editing all this out, of course. But yeah. Oh no. So I follow a three-part session with um, with Michelle. And let's see. The last, the last on the um, on the horses for future. I was following Susan Schneider. You are very hour. good company. Yes. <laughs> and we're about to have again. I don't know which one will come first, though. Susan Friedman again. Yes. Had a great, great conversation with her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So oh, you're in, you're in very good company. You I are. Am. You are. Boy, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling now. I'm starting to get anxious. And and I was thinking, and Dominique, you'll probably agree with this that because uh, we just had the conversation with Susan Friedman, and I think this is just uh, it fits so perfectly into what we were talking about with Susan. And it's like this is all the practical application uh, mm. in terms of because we were talking about the hierarchy. You know, right. The, most effective, least intrusive in the terms of procedures to use. And so to go from that very in-depth conversation with, with Susan Friedman, and now we're looking at uh, the rope handling with, with you and with dogs and connecting it back to horses. It's just, they all fit so beautifully together. So you're in very good company. Oh my God, I'm, I'm so honored. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well I, don't um, know, I don't know at this point which will come first. So you'll have, okay. We'll have to well, see. Um, I'll be very um, interested to hear your talk with Susan on Lima. Is that what it was primarily on? Was, yep. yep. Yeah. Okay. That was a great conversation. Oh, good. Really yeah. great conversation. I, I mean, it like always it. is with Susan. Okay. It always is. But I just, there were, there were things that, oh, you know, that really needed to be said. And, and then, yeah, I know. I know. Well, you know, I had a, um, I will, I will uh, admit that I had a little bit of a cheat last night as I, I contacted a, a trainer friend of mine. She's the um, manager of behavior and training at Seattle Humane. And, um, you know, I chatted with her a little bit about this because I said, you know, some of what I'm doing with this could be construed as negative reinforcement. And I know that you have had to deal with that um, accusation or, um, you know, some people in the, in the click around saying that the use of the lead at all is aversive. And, you know, I always go back to something that you've said, and that is that leads are part of our world. Yes. They're a part of a horse's world. We're not getting rid of them. And we're certainly not getting rid of leashes, either because of whether it's because it's law, security, or training, or whatever. We're not getting rid of them. No. They are part of a dog's world if they live with a human. So I just feel like, can we use them in a non-aversive, positive way where they become tools of communication? The question is not... Are the tool that we use, the question is always, how do we teach, how have we taught the animal how to interact with that tool? Right. That's the question. You know, I've got, uh, in one of my presentations, I've got a picture of one of the goats and I have a yellow, it was actually a Cavaletti pole, 
uh, for a little short thing. For, I guess it was for people. Um, certainly not for horses, but I've got this yellow rod in my hand and I'm holding it up straight up vertically and mm -hmm. the goat is backing away from me. Yes, and I've question, seen this video. Yeah. yeah. So, right. You saw it this past weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Look. Well, I love that. Right. Right. So uh, the question is, is that yellow rod an aversive tool or is it uh, a cue? And you don't know by looking at the tool. Right. You only know by looking at the teaching at the process. Learner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and going back and, yes, looking at the learner, right. but also going back and looking at sure. the teaching process. Right. So there's, there's no reason why that rod has to be a beating stick. Exactly. You know, and the same with a lead. The As same a, with a dressage, dressage whip or a, or a that's right. whip or any other device that's been used inappropriately. I mean, people use their hands inappropriately all yes, the time. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, that there are masterpieces built made with them. That's right. So to say, you know, I know that there are people who have hit horses and have hit dogs. So does that mean that we, in order to train, we should chop off our hands? I don't right. think so. Right. You know, That's but it's, right. it's, it's, have we, is, have we learned how to teach our, our animal, our partner, how to use the information that this tool provides in a way that enriches their life? Yes. yes. And that that teaching process has been one that they are comfortable with. And that, that through the use of this tool, that their life is enriched and that both the learner and the handler are thriving. Right. And, yeah, and it, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. And it really, it really isn't about the tool. It's, no. it's, it's about how it's presented. Yep. And, and there's and, so many ways that you can get to that communication down the line. You know, we can say it's a transferred cue. Is it uh, pressure and release of pressure? Is, you know, what, and it can be, uh, the answer can be yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All of those things. Right, um, yeah. And it's a progression of steps. It's knowing, and, it, and it's going through that progression of steps. I always say, like in the ideal world, this horse will have had this lesson followed by this lesson, followed by this lesson, so that there's never any point at which life is, is feeling where that tool feels like an aversive stimulus. The reality is that sometimes steps are missed. You know, you, you just like with the shelter dogs, you, you find yourself on the other end of a lead with a dog that, whose world is completely unraveled, yes. who's found himself in a shelter, and where do I begin? Where do I find that that place right. of comfort for that dog That's where we right. can begin that, that conversation. So that is that is the key right there. Is yep. and I always look at it as a chink. You're in a you're in a dungeon, there isn't a window, it's all rock, and you find a little ray of light coming through. And yep. that's where you start. And you start with that little ray of light and you just start chinking away. And before you know it, you've got a window. And not too long after that, you've got a door and you walk right through it. Yep, it's exactly and that, right. And that is, that is exactly how I look at these training puzzles is where can we start? Where, yes. where can I get a yes answer from you? 
Yeah. Where, wherever that is, I'm going there with you. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And so and this, what, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm just going to say, you know, the wider that, the, the, the wider that becomes, the more options you have. We yes. can go here, we can go there. Wait, maybe we want to play with this a little while, but every time you make that, you make the world a little bit more available to them, starting with a kennel and a shelter. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 And sometimes, sometimes you chip away over here and broaden out that little chink and, oh, we didn't notice the one that was behind us. Yep. Let's go work on that one for a little bit. And, and, and then before you know it, they all link together. And what you did over there informs what you're doing over here. And now you've got a pathway. That's right. Yeah. Great metaphor. Great metaphor. It's, it's always the way I've looked at training in that, yeah. that way. I, I'm glad to hear you. You can understand it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> totally understand it. Totally. Yeah. It's a great image. Really great image. Oh, great. So on that note, I think we okay. should send you back to the puppies. Yes. They will be waking up soon. I can and, hear them. <laughs> yes. And and we because we need to we need to have said our goodbyes before they start to say we yes. want attention. Yes, um, so we'll send you back to the puppies and I thank you immensely for this oh. conversation. Thank you. Thank Susan. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Thank you both. It was really I like I said, it's an honor to do it and I just Thank you both so much for what you're doing and getting the word out. It's yep. great. Happy All training. Right. Happy gardening. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. We've already let the cat out of the bag. Next week, we're going to begin what was just an incredible conversation with Dr. Susan Friedman. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you've already met Susan in some of our previous episodes. The main focus of this talk was a new article that Susan has written about Lima, the least intrusive, most humane hierarchy of behavior change interventions. It's a topic that Susan has spoken on many times, but with all that's going on in the world right now, we found some rabbit holes to go down that were not only fascinating, they were important ones to explore. I'm really, really looking forward to being able to present this conversation. One additional announcement. Last winter, I was so looking forward to hosting our science camp at my barn. If you don't know what science camp is, it's an event that we first held in Italy. We literally camped out in the mountains above Parma, and the we included Dr. Jesus Rizal's Ruiz, Mary Hunter, Michaela Hempen, and myself, plus all of our participants and just a wonderful Feldenkrais practitioner. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal week. The theme was errorless learning and the constructional approach to training. Jesus presented some new material on stimulus control that just made everyone's head spin. It was phenomenal. Just an extraordinary event from start to finish. So much so that we wanted to hold another. So the plan was for me to host science camp at my barn so people on this side of the Atlantic could attend more easily. And the date was going to be in May of this year.
So in January, I was busy ordering tents and uh, air mattresses, and I was visualizing tents popping up all over the arena and the and the barn and 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 the barn filled with people and their laughter. It was it was a good it was a good visualization. And then the coronavirus hit. So in March, it became clear that people weren't going to be able to travel, especially not to New York, which at that point was completely shut down. So we moved science camp to Labor Day weekend, thinking that would give plenty of time to get the virus under control. Well, you all know how that's working out, but we still want to hold science camp this year. And instead of postponing it into 2021, with all of the uncertainties that that involves, we decided that we're going to hold a virtual version of Science Camp. I had a long conference call with Jesus and Mary to work out the details, to work out the program. And I have to say, I'm gonna miss the late nights around a campfire, but we're going to have a virtual campfire, uh, just one that doesn't involve mosquitoes, so that's good. And people won't be able to join me for an early morning goat walk, but you probably would have been up too late the night before to do that anyway. So. Well, we're basically going to have our camp experience. We're just going to do it via the internet. And this virtual event, I think, after talking with Jesus and Mary and going over the program, I think it's going to be amazing. So we may still have a few spaces available. We're going to be keeping the group size small. So if you are interested, do please check out my website to look at the details and then contact me directly. If you think you might be interested in attending, do please get in touch with me right away because, as I said, we are going to keep the group size limited. But hopefully we'll be able to squeeze you in. So go to my website, theclickercenter.com, and you'll find information on Science Camp there. So that's it for now. And next week, we'll begin our conversation with Dr. Susan Friedman, another amazing event.